for the privilege of sharing with you and uh, being here with Pastor Paul, who I count as a, a good friend, a man of the gospel, and um, you're blessed to have him. You're blessed to have him. A couple of years ago, I was, uh, before COVID, I was flying back from Amsterdam. I had to go to some meetings in Amsterdam and I was at Kuala Lumpur Airport uh, waiting for the flight from KL to Sydney. And I'm in the bathroom. I decided, well, in fairness to the person sitting next to me, I'd better freshen up. And so I went in the bathroom and got my wash bag out and whatever. And this young man, not young, it's all relative, probably about 35, came across and he said, can I borrow your wash bag? He said, I've just flown in from Japan and I'm going back to Amsterdam. I need to freshen up. And I looked at him and thought, okay. So I gave him everything but my toothbrush and away he went, you know, the lot and just took everything I had and there you go. And uh, he said, where are you going? And I said, I'm going to Sydney. Oh, he said, and where have you come from? Amsterdam. Oh, he says, I live in Amsterdam. He said, I've been in Japan for about 12 months uh, on an extended sabbatical. He said, I'm a professor, I'm going back to Amsterdam um, and so I'm doing an exchange flight. He said, what do you do in Sydney? I said, I'm the principal of a Christian Bible college. He just looked at me. I said, oh, have I offended you in some way? Oh, he said, no, no. He said, uh, when I go back to Amsterdam, he said, I don't, I, well, he said, no, I've never met a Christian before. I kind of didn't know whether you existed. Now, if you've been to Amsterdam, there's some great things happening in the churches in Amsterdam. But if you're not connected to the kind of movement and whatever, and you walk around Amsterdam, I was reminded as I walked around, basically every church you pass in Amsterdam, any church of, you know, in the main streets, is either a museum or a recital hall. And that's why he was bemused to have actually met someone who still claims to be an active, committed Christian. But we are a people of hope, are we not? We are a people of hope and we love a challenge. And in fact, the verses that we read, the eight verses that we read, I'm going to suggest to you, if those eight verses were not in Mark's Gospel, you and I would not be here today. If these eight verses... And these eight verses conclude Mark's Gospel. So you've got 15 chapters, bang, then you've got eight verses. If these eight verses were not in your Bible, Jesus would be lucky to be a line in human history. If anything at all. We are people who tend to love marches. Um, you know, Anzac Day, we all you know, honour Anzac Day and, and I always uh, a part of an Anzac Day march in the sense of going out and into the city and watching the march take place. And, and when you go to an Anzac Day march, the interesting thing is you see people of all different nationalities and backgrounds and uh, no doubt in their histories 
I mean, have been on other sides with respect to the war. But Anzac Day is a time when everybody comes together to acknowledge our service. And we love the march of victorious football teams or whatever who go through the city, and I was getting ready for the Swans march, but um, sadly it didn't happen. Uh, and uh, the Sharks march didn't happen, but maybe next season. But we love the engagement of, of celebration and a march. And when we come to the Bible, they're a march world as well. They understand marches. And in Jesus' day, there was a victory march. And this victory march is actually seen... Uh, next slide, thanks. This victory march is actually seen in Mark chapter 11. And what's happening? You'll know the story of Mark's gospel. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. And as he comes into Jerusalem, what, what happens is the crowds gather, they cry out, Hosanna. You know, they, they, they've got their palm leaves or whatever and they put their jackets on the ground and, and, and his, his colt goes over those jackets and it's a celebration. And in Jesus' day, that was not uncommon. So cities were used to conquering generals, conquering rulers, coming into a city, celebrating their victories, no doubt having behind them, as Colossians would point out, if you remember, having behind them the vanquished, the prisoners, the slaves, the booty, everything that they had achieved from their conquest. And sometimes they'd wait nine or ten months to have the march because the city would have to get ready and prepared and whatever for this victory march to take place. Well, Mark is recording a victory march. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. And the town is celebrating. This is a victory march. Oh, no doubt we have our Messiah. We can be a people of hope. Three or four chapters later, you come to a death march. And the death march was also very common in those days. The death march was when the vanquished, those who had been defeated, would be paraded before the city and the town. They would carry their form of execution, often have a plaque with it saying what their crime was, and they would be whipped or whatever, and they would be carrying their form of death into the place execution was to take place. So, death march also, part of their culture, not uncommon. What is it? Is it a victory march of Mark 11? Or is it the death march of Mark 15? What is going on here? And then you come to those extraordinary eight verses at the end that tell us that this is actually a victory march. The verses tell us that Jesus has conquered death that Jesus is not confined to the death march. He is actually the one that we celebrate. It's a victory march. There's a guy called um, Peter Hitchens. And Peter uh, is a Christian and he is a brother of the world's, one of the world's best-known atheists 
who uh, passed away a year or two ago, Christopher Hitchens. And Christopher Hitchens is up there like with Richard Dawkins. He's one of the major global atheists. Peter himself was of the same ilk, but he became a Christian. A few years ago, he's on Q&A, that that, uh, television show on the ABC, and uh, he's there with a panel, and it's at the same time as the uh, celebration, the festival of dangerous ideas is taking place at the Opera House. And as they conclude... The, uh, as I conclude the broadcast, the host asks all of the guests, what is the world's most dangerous idea? He gets to Peter Hitchens, former atheist. What is the world's most dangerous idea? And Peter answers it. Well, that's not complex, I'm paraphrasing. The world's most dangerous idea is that 2,000 years ago, a man died, rose again, and defeated death, because if that is true, it transforms, it changes everything. It is the world's most dangerous idea. You and I are recipients, hold to, express, play out the world's most dangerous idea. Because if the story finished at Mark 15, there is no church. There is no Liverpool Baptist. There is no school. There is no Bible college. Are you hearing me? If the world finished at the rugged cross, which we love so much, we would not be singing about the rugged cross. This is the world's most dangerous idea. Why is it so dangerous? Think about seven words. Verse 2 of Mark 16. Mark it. Every gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, have these same seven words. On the first day of the week. On the first day of the week. They all record the women going to the tomb on that first resurrection Sunday on the first day of the week. Why are those words so significant? Well, it's a time tag. I mean, that's helpful. But think about it. On the first day of the week, why would all four record exactly the same? When you hear first day of the week, what do you think of? First day of the week, what comes into your mind? Back to work. First day of the week, biblically, what do you think of? Creation. Genesis 1. On the first day of the week. And if you look at all the Gospels, they have this play out. It's dark, it's light, light's starting to break in darkness, they head off in the darkness, the light comes, the sun's starting to come up. What happened on the first day of the week in Genesis? On the first day of the week, light broke into darkness. On the first day of the week, oh my gosh, they're in a garden. 
They're going into a garden. My gosh, Mary actually thinks she's met the gardener. You've got an incredible play out of Genesis chapter 1. On the first day of the week, the women go to the tomb and light is breaking into darkness. This is the new order. This is the new creation. This is the dawning of a new era. It's the first day of the week. I wrote a new book um, that you can get from Morning Press or probably Kurong or somewhere else called Rise with an American colleague of mine, Jim Balcom. And uh, Jim picked up some of the stuff that I was doing in his church, Columbia Baptist, uh, in Washington. And what we've done in that book is take all the things that are in Genesis 1 and 2, work, rest, relationships, creation. We've taken all of those. We've pointed out in a simple way how they were all lost in the fall, what happened to them after the fall, and how in Jesus they are now all restored in the people of God, the kingdom of God, partially as we wait his coming to bring the fulfilment. On the first day of the week, Eden has broken in again. On the first day of the week, Genesis 1 and 2 is playing out. On the first day of the week, the world would never be the same again. Think about it. If it ended with the death march, not a line in history probably. If it finishes with these eight verses correctly, and it is victory, Wow, that's a great story, a guy defeated death, wonderful. Certainly a page in history, but it had no implication. It doesn't get much more than the page, but the world bases its calendar on this event. The world was never the same again. This is the world's most dangerous idea. This is more than just a man rising from the death. This is setting the order straight. This is the kingdom of God breaking in. This is restoration and transformation. We had a previous to the tomb, and we might just go back to that. Uh, previous slide. I think it's wonderful. Who went to the tomb? The women. You've got uh, Mary Magdalene, of course, and we know that she was delivered from evil spirits. Uh, we have uh, Salome, uh, who uh, appears to be the mother of uh, James and John, and so they're kind of cousins to Jesus. And you've got uh, the other Mary, uh, who's the mother of uh, another James. So you've got these women heading to the tomb. By the way, where are the men? Hiding. Yeah, they're hiding. Um, they, they hide well. Uh, they deny and hide. Now, if you read Mark, it's not unintentional. Mark chapter 15, verse 40, in the death march, who are the people at the death of Jesus, at the cross? The women. Now, you've got the disciples back there kind of sneaking a view, but the women are unapologetically at the cross. Who in Mark 15, 47, 
are the ones who see Jesus where he's buried. The women. Who are the ones who go and are the first witnesses to the tomb that is empty? The women. So I used to be a lawyer. (laughs) And in law, it's just wonderful if you have an unbroken chain of evidence. And for a resurrection, it's wonderful if you can show death, burial, resurrection by the same witnesses. And the only witnesses you can call to give all of those three elements are the women. Now, in Jesus' day, women weren't allowed to give evidence in a court of law. Their evidence wasn't accepted. And the Jewish historian Lapid said, he's Jewish, this brings this story an incredible ring of truth. Because if you're creating it, you would have made sure that Peter was there or somebody else was there. You would have made sure that the men are telling the story. But they're not. It's the women. Incredible ring of truth. What happens on the first day of the week? There is no Greek. There is no Jew. There is no male. There is no female. There is no slave. There is no free man. As Paul declares in Galatians 3.28, after he says in 27, we've been resurrected into the Christ. And as Peter discovers when he goes to Cornelius and he goes to a Gentile and he doesn't want to go to the Gentile, then he gets this vision at Joppa and he realises through the vision he can eat snake pie and the right and he goes off to Cornelius, and then comes this incredible statement when he gets to the Gentile and shares the gospel. He says, I now know God plays no favourites. Galatians 3.28, I know God plays no favourites. Many would declare, Christian or otherwise, this is the first declaration of universal human rights in the history of humankind. Because up until then, the Greeks had favourites, the Romans had favourites, the Jews had favourites. This was a declaration, whether you're a woman or a child, whoever you are, you are equal in the kingdom of God. The world had never seen this before. This was totally revolutionary. And it's played out by the fact that when the Holy Spirit pours on to the people of Liverpool Baptist... He does his gifting without favourites. So what happened in the early church? The master might be putting the chairs out and the slave is preaching. Oh, this changes everything. This is the restoration of the garden. But go on. Tim Foster, who was at uh, Ran Anglican Youth Works, if we have the next slide, and is now at Ridley College in Melbourne, he's got... He's got a lovely little one there that I can show you later, but basically shows how the world is totally transformed. Our relationships are transformed. What's the first two sins of the Bible? Genesis 3, rejection of God, listening to other voice. Genesis 4, brother kills brother. So what are the first two sins of the Bible? Out of kilter with God, out of kilter with each other. So when you break... The vertical with God, horizontal relationships. And that's what the rest of the Bible plays out. When you're out of kilter with God, you sin against your brother. 
The Ten Commandments tell you how to love God and how you love your neighbour. Jesus says all of the law, all the scriptures can be summed up by love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind and your neighbour as yourself. I'm reversing the fall. I'm restoring. That's why there's no Greek or Jew. If you love God, you love your neighbour. It's as simple as that, says to It's revolutionary. Relationships have changed. Our response to all our own world and our salvation, our rightness before God and our understanding of creation and restoring Genesis 1 and 2 has changed. This school, this school. How did education come into humankind? Through the gospel. Where do we think the medical world found its strength? Through the gospel. I was speaking at a uh, private uh, Christian school after Easter. They have me there most years. And, um, uh, and I was on, uh, it was a Trinity Grammar School. And, and, one, and they have a Q&A afterwards. And Q&A with young people can be interesting. And, you know, the principal's there and everyone's watching. But eventually one guy puts up his hand and says, Look, I, I, I appreciate uh, all that you've said about the resurrection that's happening and all this kind of thing. And, and it's a great idea and changes everything. But what real impact does it have on me? Now, I'm thinking, God, how am I going to answer this one? What real impact does it have on me? So I took, it, I took a chance. As a lawyer, you never ask a question you don't know the answer for. But I thought I'd take a chance on this one. I looked at him and said, do you like Trinity? He said, oh, I love Trinity. I said, do your friends like Trinity? And they're all looking around the principal. Oh, yeah, well, it's a great school. love to be here. Oh, that's good. He said, why? Well, I said, if Jesus hasn't risen, this school wouldn't exist. He said, I beg your pardon? I said, if Jesus hasn't there's no Trinity Grammar School. He said, I don't even know if there's any education at all. But there's certainly no Trinity Grammar School. And looked at him and said, you've nailed it. Okay, let's quickly finish. How can we be certain, and we can spend more time on this, how could we be certain that this is the one who's changed everything? Well, of course, you see the next slide. There's actually an empty tomb. And the women went there and the tomb was empty. And uh, I, I could show you very quickly and simply how Jesus is definitely dead at point A. He hasn't swooned his death. He hasn't pretended. There's no hallucination. People don't hallucinate the same event, nor do they hallucinate something that's going to cost them their lives if they actually claim it's true. And then you go on and you see that not only is there an empty tomb, there is also, if you go into the next slide, you can also see that within the tomb, where, where this is from the garden tomb that some of you know in Jerusalem, uh, and it's fairly accurate portrayal of what a tomb would have looked like. Where behind the barrier there, where behind the fence, the garments were laid, there is no body. So how can we be sure? Well, Jesus is dead at point A, as I said. And I, there's hardly anyone responsible who doubts that. And some people do the swoon theory, you know, as I mentioned, you know, he actually pretended to be dead and then came out alive and Barbara Thiering who I did some study with and is probably the most liberal Australian. Uh, and she was a wonderful woman, but just, you know, theologically off with the fairies. And, and Barbara would say to me things like, well, Ross, look, I'm afraid 
that's the way it is. And on radio, she was trying to explain that Jesus is in the tomb and somehow the two thieves that die next to him in the tomb, one of them Simon Magnus, and somehow they get the aloes and myrrh and they pour that all over Jesus and that revives him. And so then he comes out of the tomb, I'm risen. And as he's sharing all that, a doctor rang in because it's talking about radio and says, look, Barbara, I'm not a Christian. I don't you know, want to say one thing or the other, but I can tell you if that guy had been executed and he was in that state and you put that kind of stuff on him, aloes and myrrh, that would have killed him. He wasn't dead already. It wouldn't have revived him. I mean, he's dead. And the evidence for him being alive, people who sold their life, who saw and witnessed the resurrection of Christ and would not move back from that. Witnesses everywhere if we had time. Sure, there's troubles. Sure, we've got to do a hard work. But he's dead and alive. My son-in-law, no, yeah, my, one of my grandkids, uh, we're looking at writing a new book on the questions that grandchildren ask. I kid you not. This kid's going on six. Uh, he FaceTimes me. Um, he says, Papa, two questions. His mother's sitting there and said, yeah, you can have them, Dad. I said, what are the two questions? He said, one book I'm reading, Papa, says Jesus was put in the tomb by Romans. Yeah. Another book, so he's talking about the Gospels, obviously, says Jesus was placed there by some disciples. Which one's true? Oh, my gosh. He's six. Now, I can show how you can reconcile that. But all I'm saying is people's questions about the event of the resurrection are strong and understandable because you're, you're asking them to invest into the world's most dangerous idea. Not just have a belief that this guy defeated death, but to change their life for the world's most dangerous idea and they are entitled to be sceptical. But in face of the evidence and the work of the Holy Spirit, it happened, folks. Let me conclude... Um, I don't know if you're into C.S. Lewis and Narnia and all that, I am, and Lord of the Rings and, and a lot of them, but in C.S. Lewis there is Aslan the Lion. And you know Aslan dies for the sin of the boy in order that they may go into the promised land, Narnia, and of course he dies and rises again. C.S. Lewis is writing a Christian fairy tale. Sewers Lewis and Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, said every fairy tale finds its climax in the person of Jesus. By the way, and I'm not advocating you'll read Harry Potter, but J.K. Rowling said exactly the same thing. Think of this. Whose birth is predicted. Who has to escape when word comes out that he's going to be born and is born. Who gets together a motley crew of disciples who dies fighting the great evil one and his massive serpent? Of whom is it said he is risen? Answer? Answer? Harry Potter. <laughs> Rawlings immersed herself in C.S. Lewis and in Tolkien because there is only one story, folks. There's only one universal story. Lewis tells it, Tolkien tells it, 
Potter tells it. By that I'm not endorsing all the imagery. I'm just simply saying there's one universal story. And as Tolkien said to Lewis, what happens? What happens if this story actually turns out to be true? What happens if it actually happens sometime? What happens if our universal longing of rescue and recovery and transformation and part of a new idea that Narnia and Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter, all what happens if that is no longer mythical but actual factual? Lewis converted because he understood the universal longing and story is the world's greatest idea. Anyway, Aslan the Lion, Aslan says to Lucy, Sam familiar, she says, go back and wake those guys up and tell them to follow me. Where it goes, we don't quite know. They don't know, but that doesn't count. Follow me. Sound like the end of Mark? I was uh, picking up a couple of my grandchildren uh, from their church, which is uh, down near the Sydney Harbour. And uh, it was a time of vivid. And um, <coughs> yeah, three years ago or so, before COVID, or vivid's now back, and I'd, I'd been one of those guys who went into Vivid three or four times and thought, what on earth am I doing here? I mean, too many people, whatever. <laughs> I mean, seen there, been that, done that, seen that kind of thing. Anyway, as we're driving past around the harbour to get back onto the main road, uh, my two, two of my granddaughters are looking out and Vivid's on and they're seeing the opera house and Vivid's on. They're going, Papa, look, Vivid, look, look at the lights, look, stop the car, look. Oh, yeah, ho-hum. Oh, that's lovely. Let's keep going. Friends, we're like that with the world's greatest idea. We've got to recharge. Oh, yeah, he's risen. Oh, yeah, that's nice. We get emotional about Easter Friday, and so we should. But let me tell you, the most emotional event in the New Testament is Easter Sunday because if that happened, Easter Friday has relevance and the world was never the same again and schools and education and transformation of souls and Genesis 1 and 2 was rectified and the gates of hell cannot prevail against the risen Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we are a people of hope, not in ourselves, but in the Lord Jesus Christ the one who died for our sins as we've been reminded and rose again. And Lord, why this is a a message of personal encouragement and strength and forgiveness, it's more than that. Eden has broken in. The kingdom has begun. Only to be culminated when you return. Lord, let us not be fearful. Let us be hopeful. Let every day we walk out in the power and the strength of the risen Christ. And we ask that in his glorious name.